Hey, it's Conversations Podcast. In this episode coming up, Josh and I get to talk to Dr. Mark Fields, who um, has been a friend and mentor to both of us. Um, he's This guy's got like more degrees than a thermometer. He's so educated and also just kind and accessible. And over the years, he's brought so, he's made so much of his knowledge and his insight available uh, to me as a pastor needing insight uh, from a pastor, uh, to Josh as a missionary needing insight from a former missionary. Um, And he also happens to know a whole lot about the Desert Fathers. So we get to hear from Mark Fields, who was for more than two decades the director of Vineyard USA Missions and one of the most significant leaders in the history of our movement. So Mark Fields, guys. Uh, well, hey, Mark Fields, the uh, actually the illustrious uh, Reverend Doctor Mark Fields. Uh, really appreciate you joining us on the podcast, uh, Mark. I've known you for quite a few years, and Josh, he's here with us. Uh, he's known you for quite a few years too, and uh, you've been one of our heroes as well. Um, but there are probably folks on the podcast who haven't had the chance to meet you. Um, so I wonder if you could just start by giving us maybe the 30,000 foot view, tell us, uh, um, maybe a little bit of your background, your education, some of the ministry stops along the way, that, that type of stuff. And then we'll just take it from there. So I've really had three, uh, two jobs. I'm embarking on a third endeavor now, but the first was, um, I planted and pastored a church. I was 22 years old. It was a long time ago. And, um, God bless that. And we planted a bunch of other churches out of there. And then I led missions for that. That lasted 20 years. And then I led missions for the vineyard for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been married tomorrow is my anniversary, our anniversary. It'll be 44 years. All right. Congrats. So that's tomorrow. If we make it till tomorrow, Um, Mm -hmm. three kids, nine grandkids, only three of which live local, which is a bit of a bummer because I, I miss them, but we just saw another one of the the nine um, when we went away to on vacation. And mm-hmm. I have far more than my share of education. Yeah. <laughs> I like to learn. Was- I'm working on a, a third master's degree now. Yes. My goodness. To go along with your PhD and whatever else, huh? Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the third master's degree? Um, it's in Carmelite spirituality. I'm quite convinced that John of the Cross has some really important insights for people in our culture who are deconstructing in their faith. And there's just some things to learn mm. from him that, that are really important. And I want to delve into that. Wow. Now, maybe I wish we were talking about that. <laughs> maybe we'll get there. Uh, that's cool. Um, so Mark, we've, we've seen, uh, over the years as we've spent time together at different stops along the way. And I know with Josh too, as you guys have done missions work together, um, I've seen you light up when you talk about history. Um, and I've seen you and heard you share parts of your story where some of your, some of your ideas around, um, spiritual formation and just what it means to have a day-to-day life with Jesus has been really impacted by um, some of the early church fathers and the desert fathers after that. And so um, 
you were you were the expert we wanted to talk to uh, to talk about that point in church history. Um, I wonder if you'd just kind of give us a uh, give us the overview, like what what was happening, what gave rise to the desert fathers and mothers, or, or anywhere else you might want to take it. But can you can you kind of give us a summary of what was happening in the church at that time? Yeah. So so generally, the the first of the desert fathers has been identified as Anthony the Great. Now. Current scholarly research argues that there were people in the desert before him, but he's really the one that's given the credit as as the the one who birthed that movement. So he he originates in the late third century. So he he moved to the desert sometime around two sixty two seventy something like that, and the church at that time was being severely persecuted. So the last major persecution of the church was. 303. So Diocletian was the emperor at that time. And so that plays into successive waves of going to the desert, but it doesn't really play out for for Anthony. So his story is that he was going about life, doing his things, and heard a sermon in a church on Matthew 19, the the rich young man who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him with the statement about, you know, why do you call me good? Why do you come to me as someone who's good? And he says, but what you need to do is keep the commandments. He says, which commandments? He lists a bunch of the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done that since I was a little kid. Um, and Jesus says, well, there is one more thing. Sell all that you have and come and follow me. Mm-hmm. And the story, as we know, ends in Matthew 19 with the, the man turning away. Anthony didn't turn away. Anthony heard that not just as a statement to a rich young man hundreds of years before him. He heard that as God's word directly to him. So he settled his affairs, sold what he had, ensured his family was taken care of, and went to the desert. And that's that's how it all began. And, be, and he started to live the life of a hermit, which is one of three ways that they lived in the desert and went out there to follow Jesus in silence and solitude. Now, when you say when you say in the desert, just so people know, this is like right outside. Of, this is like in Egypt, right outside of Alexandria. Yeah, this is this activity. Yeah, this is Egypt and Syria. Palestine were the three major areas. He was in Egypt. Yep. So not a metaphorical desert, like a desert desert. Like a real desert. Mm-hmm. You drive through yeah. it, it's dry and not a lot of vegetation. Yeah. So you talked about the three the three expressions of the three forms. What were what were those? Yeah. So people began to follow him out there. Let me let me put in a little piece before I sure. answer. And, of course. Um, and and some of that had to do with with the persecution that was going on, but much of it actually happened after that persecution. So you have the Edict of Milan in 313, which is when Christianity became a recognized religion within the Roman Empire, and persecution had had been had ceased ten years prior to that. So so people were looking for ways to um, have the depth of spirituality that they had had under persecution and many of them went out to do battle with the with the the uh, the devil in the in the desert following the example of jesus luke 4 
And so there were actually thousands of people, some some estimates I've read. I'm always a little, I, you know, I'm not a real historian. So expert is probably not the term that actually would be appropriate to describe me on this subject. I do have an interest and a love for that. But um, I don't know how numbers are calculated from ancient history. I've seen things that it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think these are probably a, a guess, actually. But certainly there were thousands that followed him. And some numbers I've mm. seen are as high as 100,000 people went out into the desert. Now, some of that was wow. sociological. There was taxation that was increasing as a part of the Roman governmental system. And we see bits of that in the New Testament. It was a system that was really stacked against people and in favor of abuse. So some people went out to see mm. that, but that really wasn't the major motivation. The real motivation was spiritual depth and growth, and they would would meet these people and hear the stories of them and went out there to either do battle with the devil or um, for other, other ways around their own spiritual growth. So the way it emerged is there were three things that have happened. One is simply that they would live as hermits, as Anthony did. And his cave mm -hmm. is still there. I have a good friend who is actually an expert in this, and he visited the cave of Anthony the Great a few years ago. And it's still there. It's a cell. It's, it's carved into the 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 wall of the of the mountain and that's where anthony was so some of them initially went out and um began to to live independently on their own then as people went out to the desert small communities began to gather around them and so the second of those is that you would have an abba or a spiritual father there would be some people who would be gathered around him and that's the second model where you have a smaller group. They may be a part of a larger monastery and would go down there for worship services, but there would be kind of a smaller grouping. And then the third one was a larger monastic expression that could include actually up to hundreds of, of monks living there. And those mm. still exist today, some from this period in Egypt that have been there for, you know, whatever that is, 17, 1800 years. Mm. Mark, I was really curious about something that you pointed out. Uh, you talked about um, that as a result of the Edict of Milan, there was there was not as much persecution, and so people didn't feel uh, as much, uh, you know, th their spiritual states maybe wasn't as, as, as strained and pressured, and so they actually sought after that. That's part of the reason they went to the desert. I mean, is that what I heard you say? And yeah, the first the first 250 or 200 or so years of the church, martyrdom was common, and mm -hmm. it was kind of anticipated in many ways. And that some of those wow. things get a little bit weird. So this became another way of pursuing that call to martyrdom. In this case, not actual death in an arena or at the hands of Roman authorities, but rather rather death to self in the desert. That's just fascinating to me that people almost were afraid of becoming too comfortable in their Christianity. And so they, they sought this out. I mean, that's, that's just so foreign to so many of our Christian cultures today. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's just, it's shocking to me that at the, really the point at which it was becoming easier <laughs> to be a Christian in Rome and in the empire that people were at, for that very reason on their way out um yeah it's stirring i don't think that uh is our maybe 
natural disposition to look for the most difficult path. Yeah. yeah I mean, you think, of, you think of the legacy of these guys, and I know we're going to talk more about that here in just a few minutes. I mean, this was an early, uh, incredible, unexpected, I would say, movement uh, that happened early in church history. Um, and it just sounds like people were hungry and thirsty for God in such a, a way that they went to extreme measures. I just, I, I think there's, it, this whole conversation is, is worth dialing into just to like explore what that means and like how we can, how we can think about that today. Mm. Well, people took it very seriously of wanting to follow Jesus. And so again, in Luke four, Jesus went out into the desert to do battle with the devil. That's where his, the temptations occurred. And so people were seeking to emulate the life of Christ in both literally and figuratively. And so this is one of the ways that they did that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of language around spiritual warfare. Um, I've heard some people be pretty dismissive about that, that says, you know, basically they were out in the desert and they were living in isolation, which it doesn't sound like it was all that isolated if there were possibly tens of thousands or maybe even a hundred thousand people or at somewhere that there was, you know, a, a, basically a city in the desert, which is remarkable. Um, uh, but, uh, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. But it's it's stunning to me that there was that much of a of a desire for what was challenging. Um, I think we're I think we're far from that. Well, yeah, I had a question with that, Aaron. So, Mark, like a lot of criticism I hear from normally evangelicals or, or, or people that don't understand uh, monasticism in general, and, and certainly wouldn't understand the Desert Fathers, because when you read, like I've read the Desert Fathers quite quite a bit of, of, of stuff that. That, uh, you know, they're they're quoted as saying, and it's bizarre to to Western minds. A lot of it is is strange. Um, some of the ways they thought and some of the things they said and did. And I think people that look at monasticism in general think, well, isn't that strange? Aren't they getting away from community? Are, you know, are they are they isolating themselves? Is that really what Jesus was teaching? But I don't think that's what was happening. So what what was the point? Like uh, I know you touched on that, but what were they doing? And what were they not? doing? Well, they were not doing a lot of things. I mean, I mean, Aaron started on the on the the question around spiritual warfare, and it's interesting mm -hmm. when you read the Desert Fathers, what what you see is is their understanding of spiritual warfare emerges, and I would say that at least as I understand it, it falls into two camps. So, so you do read like Athanasius's life of Anthony. So Athanasius was an, a bishop and he wrote a life of a, a, a biography of Anthony that was one of the things that propelled people out again into the desert. And he talks in there about like Anthony, like literally duking it out with demons in his cave. Like people mm -hmm. are throwing punches and ending up bloodied and, you know, I don't know. I have no experience with that. I mean, I've seen some things that I think that's very possible, but that's one end of it. And that seems rather unusual. The other end, which is where they really see the focus of spiritual warfare is in the mind. And so even if you're you're out there by yourself, your mind is still with you. So the thoughts and those things that are going on inside of you aren't lost and avoided. And so I never remember whether it was Anthony the Great or Abba Moses. If I don't know who it is, I tend to attribute it to Abba Moses because I like him and he has a great story. So I give him all the credit, but who said, you know, go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything. So they mm -hmm. went there 
with the expectation that they would learn about themselves and about God. And so it was really um, the ascetic practices sometimes got crazy, you know, so they would fast for incredible lengths of time and see who could kind of, I, I don't know why asceticism lends itself to competitiveness, but it happens throughout church history. And so if Aaron can fast 30 days, then I can fast 31. And if I can fast 31, then Josh is going to say what? I can do 36. And so it, it, there, the, it loses the spiritual component quite, quite easily in, in some ways, but they went out there with the goal of um, finding silence. There's a Greek word, hezekia, that comes up in the history of spirituality, and that word means stillness or silence. And what they realized is, is that, that the silence is not just external, that's one way to find it, but you can actually have silence inside in the midst of mm. business around you. You can also mm. have loudness and and the domination of thoughts in the midst of utter silence and so mm -hmm. they look to find continuity between those things an external silence but more importantly an internal silence mm -hmm. and so they would fast they they ate very little um they would um read the scriptures there's a book called the word in the desert douglas burton christie that's a real classic on this and speaks about how they use the scriptures and it's very interesting because he uses language actually it's another writer who i think i assume she got it from him i'm not sure she summarizes it a bit better than than christie does and she talks about it as a hermeneutic of practice and so they went out there with the scriptures largely memorized and their goal was to 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 live them not just to know them or know the theology of it so so like all movements there were a couple of verses that stood out to them and it's interesting that it's often verses for which the answer is not immediately evident that mm. that groups are drawn. And so, there were two verses in particular that come to mind that were prominent for them. One is the statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's the fifth chapter of Matthew, where he says, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm -hmm. And so, they took that as, as a challenge and began the process of saying, how do I be, I mean, first of all, what is perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect? And they understood it differently than we would, many of us having had some experience in the evangelical church and around fundamentalism where perfection is a series of don'ts. And so, if I do nothing, then I, I accomplish that. That's not what it was for them. They realized that the essential core of who God is, according to the scriptures, God is love. And so, they said, I need to love like God loves. And they began a journey of taking off, using the Pauline language, those things that didn't help them in that process and putting on those things that did help them. And then another verse that was predominant for them was 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which speaks about 
always being praying, praying without ceasing. And so they wanted to figure out how to do that. And so some of them did some very interesting things, like they would try not to sleep at night, because if you're mm -hmm. sleeping, you're not praying. And if we're supposed to be praying 24-7, and that's a command that's given to me, then it has to be possible, and therefore there mm -hmm. has to be a way to do it. And so they would try to stay up or sleep standing up or or just always trying to find ways to do that. Some of the more creative ones thought, well, if I can't be praying, I can get other people to pray for me. So they went out and did acts of service and then asked people in gratitude to pray for them and saw that as part of their effort for unceasing prayer being around them. But they mm -hmm. sought to live out what they read in the scriptures. And Christie's mm -hmm. book documents a deep, deep, deep commitment to the scriptures and not just knowing them, but living them. So that's mm. what they were really about was the pursuit of that. Mm. And for, and for them, it wasn't just about being solitary. It was, it was, it was gaining access to the deep things of God for everything you just described for themselves, but also so that they could take that back to communities or take that back to the church. What was that part of it? You know, the mission, the missional aspect for the monasteries is a little bit different. And, and maybe you could argue it was the first attractional church effort because their mission efforts were largely not them going out. To, they didn't go into the city and preach that I'm aware of, but people would come to them. And so you, you have folks going out on pilgrimages out into the desert because they're seeking to be around people who have depth in their relationship with God. That many of them would do spiritual direction and they would do that through letters. And so some of those are still existent today. And you can see the counsel that they were given because some of them lived in, I'm thinking of some of the, the Syrian monks, they lived in such isolation, they would have an attendant who would take the letter. If you came to where they were, you would write a letter with what you your questions were, your needs were. You would give that to the attendant. The attendant would take it to the monk. The monk would get to writing a response, give it to the attendant, and give it back to you. So it wasn't, you know, the postal service delivering these letters. But people went to where there was insight, and there's stories around all of these folks of healings and dramatic conversion and all of those things. But it had to do with people hearing the story of what God was doing in these folks and the wisdom that they had, and they were sought out because of that. And so that was mm -hmm. the missional aspect to what they were doing. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I think, yeah, go ahead, Aaron. Well, I just, I just find this uh, attention in all of this where um, there's a part of me that kind of, that wants to push back and say, well, you know, is that the right type of application for this kind of intensity? And is that always what dedication needs to look like? Um, and is this a workspace thing? And then yet, the more you talk, the more, the more I realize um, they were experiencing peace and stillness and rest with the Lord. Um, and that it wasn't sort of, um, sounds less and less like trying to earn something and more and more like trying to embody something and just live out the devotion that they find in Scripture. They just sound, they just sound incredibly sincere. And, and I think that's exactly right. And, and a lot of these folks were people who had dramatic conversions. I mean, I'm, I'm quite enthralled by, actually, there, there were 
there were thousands of people that went out there. A handful of them were women. So, so there, there, there were very few women that pursued this. But one of those was Mary of Egypt. And I am just amazed at her, her story. It's one of the things I cry about these days when I think about mm-hmm. it. So, so here is this young woman. They don't know a lot about her background. Um, but at 12, she really becomes a sex addict. And so for the next 17 years, she basically sleeps with everybody that she can. Now, they don't use the language mm. of sex addict, but that's what it mm. was. Sometimes she's labeled as a prostitute, but in the biography of her that is the standard the standard bi- biography of her, she's, she's quoted as saying that she refused money on many occasions. She just wanted to sleep with men. There's just this element of brokenness that's there. And that goes on for 17 years. So she's now 29 years old. And it was not uncommon for pilgrimages to be made at that time, particularly from Egypt to Jerusalem. So she sees all these people going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and something attracts her to that. So she decides to go on kind of an anti-pilgrimage and sleeps with everybody she can on the way to Jerusalem. So Mm. she goes to Jerusalem, attracted to this, but then seducing the pilgrims on the way, gets to Mm. Jerusalem. They're all going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, this was the first version of it before it was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So, so she goes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and cannot cross the threshold of the church. Something stops her. She just cannot, mm-hmm. cannot go. And here's these words spoken to her. If you cross the river and go to the desert, you'll find peace. And she leaves wow. there and goes to the desert, goes to a monastery. They give her direction. She goes out and lives. And people came out to see her. And if mm. you look at the icons of her, it's this incredibly emaciated woman. I mean, it just, mm. you see the, the results of asceticism, which are in, in this harsher sense, which it can evolve to that, as we've already said. Um, it's not good on the body. It's not easy on the body. And yet she mm-hmm. found peace that wasn't there for those 17 years. And mm-hmm. I just find that kind of an amazing story. And mm-hmm. Abba Moses has a story, a similar story. He was a murderer. He was not a nice person. He led a band of robbers, had a dramatic conversion, and became mm-hmm. one of the kindest um of the desert fathers. I mean, what Josh mm-hmm. alluded to, the stories are interesting because some people they treat with great kindness and some people they seem incredibly harsh. And you're like, how mm-hmm. does this make sense? I mean, there's there's no pattern here. Why is, so So like one of the stories of harshness, I can't remember who, which one it, of the fathers it's related to, but someone comes to him and, you know, we want to learn because they were always disciples going out there. And some of them they would welcome, some they would leave sitting for days on end at the door and just ignore them. In this case, he takes them to the stream. And as I imagine it anyway, I'm trying to remember exactly what it says. He kind of points to the water and says something and the, the potential disciple gets down close to the water and the Abba shoves his head under the water holds them under and he's flailing about and he's afraid he's going to drown and and finally the abba lets him out and he says when you want god as much as you wanted air come back and see me wow that feels rather harsh to me (laughs) (laughs) and and as i read these some of many of which bring a chuckle 
you know, mm-hmm. but, but, but what I think was, is they had a perception of the human heart and that in some way mm-hmm. he knew that this person wasn't ready. Now, I, I'm not ready to do that. Hey, Josh, come to my house, take a look in my bathtub and now you're going to get mm-hmm. waterboarded. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you know, that, that feels harsh for us. It was a different world and culture. But there was mm-hmm. an understanding that people needed to want God. And so it wasn't mm-hmm. an issue of coercion or persuasion. It was an mm-hmm. issue of calling. And so you see this huge variation in, in both in what's preserved and assuming that that's representative of the general span of what was experienced. It, it's mm-hmm. really interesting. And the only thing that I can conclude, as I said already, is that was the Holy Spirit really. Yeah really leading and they they were known to be perceptive that was one of the gifts that's a part of how they define discernment not all of it but part of it is the capacity to recognize what was going on in the heart of another person and that's what drew people to them was that perception and offering insight into what was often hidden from Mm. people themselves and that their own relationship with god and the depth in which god had worked in them Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we said a couple times, I, yeah, I remember, I think I was either in my late teens or early 20s when, and I still have a copy somewhere in, my, in one of my bookshelves of um, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, you know, and I know there's several books out there. And I think actually, Mark, you had given me one a few years ago uh, that uh, a lady that had really studied the Desert Fathers. But I remember the first time I read it and I was just like, this is so weird. This is so, it, it feels so different to any streams of christianity i had personally been exposed to at the time and i remember thinking some of these don't even make sense it doesn't it doesn't even sound like christianity and then i you know as i i did a little more digging um you know it, it sounded like people that had wrestled with the scriptures in ways that we don't because of our busyness and that and i like mm-hmm. you know a light kind of clicked when i started reading them from that perspective um I say all that to ask you a question. What, you know, if people were going to read the Desert Fathers today, especially young people, that so much of this kind of stuff would be very foreign. Um, why are they needed? Like, why why study them? Why look into them uh, in our day and age and in our culture in, in the U.S.? Well, I think, I mean, I'll make a suggestion about where to start. But before I do that, I'll answer your question. And that is, I think that... Um, I mean, I don't, beyond Jesus and the first apostles, there are very few people that have had the continuous influence that the Desert Fathers have had. Mm. I mean, they, they show up in, in every movement of spirituality, or virtually mm. every. I mean, they're constantly coming up time and time again. John Wesley, for example, quoted uh, Macarius of Egypt, now generally viewed to be pseudo-Macarius. But, I mean, Wesley was influenced by them. The German pietists were were influenced by them. Benedict and, and all of the monastic movements that have come about have been influenced by them. And those have been the sources of renewal over and over and over again in the history of the church. So these are things that have have lasted over centuries and been found time and time and time again, in spite of the distance of time and culture to have meaning and value for people who are pursuing God. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, and that's, I've thought about why do I feel attracted to them? And I think some of it mm-hmm. honestly 
is the differentness. It, it forces mm. me to think differently. I can listen to um, someone from my tradition and it's, it's easy for me to turn it off thinking I've heard this before or I know this. Mm-hmm. When I'm confronted with something that is so different, so, so unexpected, so startling mm. on occasion, it forces me to wrestle with that in ways that I, I wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. I mean, I'm currently in a deep dive into Dallas Willard these days, and there is just far more depth in him than I had realized when I first mm-hmm. started reading him. And I think I did the very thing that I just said. I think I sometimes would listen to Willard and think, okay, this comes from the evangelical tradition. I know this. I get this. And I've had to slow down and listen much more carefully and think more fully. So I think that's the value of it, is the distance actually prompts us to wrestle more deeply with it. And if someone Mm -hmm. wanted something around this, I probably would not I mean, there's a couple, there's there's several different collections. One is alphabetical, the other is thematic. Those are the two major ones. There's there's plenty of things that are excerpts, but that yellow book, which is the one I gave you, I think would be a great starting point. It's short, it's easy to read. And it's the the title of the book is To Love as God Loves. And the author is Roberta Bondi. And Bondi was a professor of systematic theology at Chandler School of Theology at Emory, so a Methodist school. And she's written an autobiography which tells her story, and it's very, very interesting. She um, retired not that long ago, within the last decade or so from there. And she um, was of an age that there was just no space for women in ministry. And so Mm -hmm. it was very difficult. She ended up getting an MDiv and she was going to to Oxford to do a DPhil in, um, I think, Old Testament, if I remember correctly. And really struggling, he had a broken marriage, really struggling with her relationship with God. And somehow one of the professors pointed her towards actually one of the obscure Desert Fathers. And she began to read that and found a spirituality, a Christianity that made sense to her. And in that had a real conversion experience. And so that book is not her story, but that book is about what she learned as she shifted her focus. She became a systematic theologian and rooted what she did in her understanding of of spirituality and Christianity emerging from her study of the Desert Fathers. And so that book was a very important book for me because it gave a framework then for reading the sayings. And I think one of the things that you brought up, Aaron, was was kind of the works thing. And for them, it's not that. I mean, it's Dallas Willard says works are opposed to grace, but effort isn't. And this Mm -hmm. is effort. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the, the, the words that shows up a lot in Eastern Orthodox spirituality that that Willard was certainly aware of because he uses it is synergism or synergia is the Greek word. And so they understood that they were cooperating with God. Now God Mm -hmm. takes the initiative, God adds the power, but I cooperate with God in the process of what he's doing. And that's what was happening there is they were seeking Mm -hmm. to cooperate with God because you read many of them. I'm thinking of the old men of Gaza, John and Barsanufius in their their letters of spiritual direction, which there's two volumes of those, they they there's a grace in those that is amazing. I mean, that's the other kinds of stories that occur in the Desert Fathers and Mothers. There's one of the stories 
that's another one of my favorites. And there was a, a monk that was going into town and seeing prostitutes. And his brother monks found out about that and they were going to confront him and let and discipline him for this. And so they waited until he actually had a prostitute in, was with a prostitute and went in to confront him. But on the way there, they ran across one of these Abbas. So not every monk was an Abba. Those were the deeply spiritual individuals who had, mm-hmm. had in whom God had worked most deeply and were the leaders in these communities, formally or informally. And they say to him, hey, we're, we're going to go confront this monk. So he goes along with them. But when they get there, he goes in first, the prostitute's there, he hides her, sits on the basket in which he hides her, calls the rest of the monks and says, "Where, where's, where's your evidence? Where's the prostitute? There isn't there. They look everywhere. They don't look on the basket upon which he is sitting. They leave. He says to the monk, don't ever do this again, basically. Mm. So there was a graciousness in that, that that Mm. sort of is the opposite of holding the person under the water, that again, Mm. makes sense to me only if I understand that these folks are sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit and responded to each situation with the challenge or grace that it required. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really stirring. It, It strikes to me that that based on their their devotion and their sacrifice that maybe and this is a little bit in contrast to our moment that these people were just really worthy of trust maybe that's why people sought them out because um you don't have to be worried about what other ulterior motives they might you know they're clearly not after money or power or health or wealth or prosperity or celebrity or all those things that are kind of in the water. If you go to a spiritual leader today, it's like, well, do they do they just want do they just want what's in my wallet? Do they just want you know another person to to build their acclaim and help them establish their own kingdom? And maybe you go to someone and you're willing to receive the kind of grace like in that story, or maybe you're willing to have your head held under the water because this is a person who clearly isn't trying to um, gain. For it, they're not after selfish gain, um, and and I, I, I you know, I, I don't think this is necessarily a model for a lot of people to follow always. But um, if we had if we had more like that, more models like that, people who clearly aren't out to gain anything but to help move people toward devotion to Jesus and sincere following. I mean, the, the yeah, monastic clearly isn't for everybody. That That is mm-hmm. absolutely clear. The, the impetus or the, the outcome that I would desire for this is not a bunch of people say, I'm going to go become a monk. I think that's a mm-hmm. distinct calling. So I think, I, mm-hmm. but I think for some that matters. And there's a depth that's there that doesn't occur in any other way. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I was also thinking about like, again, going back to young people today. And I mean, the, the big buzzword for the last few years, longer than that, but especially the last few years is, is deconstructing. Everybody's deconstructing. And I think a lot of people uh, in faith backgrounds that we come out of are certainly, uh, they're deconstructing for a whole host of reasons. But one of them is, is, is the phoniness they see in, in a lot of church and church culture that they grew up in. And so one of the things I love around this conversation is these were serious people. I mean, these were people that were so serious about their faith that they, they did and said and acted in extreme ways, you know? Um, and I do think like to Aaron's or to both of your points, like, yeah, not, maybe monasticism isn't for everybody, 
But I think there are a lot of young people that are looking for serious Christians, people that really believe what they say. And so there's something there's something to be said about this this culture of going out in the mm-hmm. desert, uh, literally or figuratively, whatever that means to to go to the desert to find God and to find yourself. And so mm-hmm. I'm talking out loud here, but I just I think it's I think well, it's just interesting. Josh, what you said, I think is pretty resonant. Like I think there is some sort of a a swelling desire, especially in emerging culture like Gen Z, for people who are actually really serious about stuff. I, my mind went to David Goggins. I don't know if you know about him. He's he's like a YouTube superstar, and he's just the most intense guy you could ever imagine. He's just we're we're gonna crush it twenty seven hours a day, no holds barred. Like he's so incredibly intense about reaching his maximum, you know, potential or possibility and, and stretching the bounds of humanity and what a human can do and all that stuff. He's just crazy intense. And then I think, you know, a guy like that can get as famous, I mean, incredibly famous as he is, um, because there is some sort of resonant desire. Um, I think people see a lot of complacent Christianity and go, well, I mean, is it really all that, like, is that really all there is to it? Like, if if you really believe what you say about Jesus, how how could he be anything but the center of your life? Like, if he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is it logical at all that he would be stuck in the background? And I think people are catching on to that and looking for something that's really serious. And and you know, it sounds like maybe that's what those guys were doing um, and girls to a lesser degree um, at a time when. Christianity was starting to become mainstream, they said, well, let's get out of here and make sure we take this as seriously as we possibly can. Yeah, I just have a question for Mark about that. Um, so, Mark, do you feel like, because, yeah, there is kind of this um, this heaviness of, of, of the extremes they went to, um, but I think when you really look into who they were, there, uh, while there was wrestling with devils and such, there was also a lot of contemplative stuff. There was a lot of, uh, did they make a lot of space? So I'll ask you the question instead of speculating, was there space for rest and Sabbath and these kinds of concepts within their lives uh, in doing these extreme things? Um, I, I'm t- I, I don't see Sabbath and rest coming up that I remember in their writings with, I mean, again, they're, they're, it, it's work and pray. So, so many of them were involved, engaged in work activities like, like doing baskets or in some cases it was agriculture, different things and praying. And so it was really centered around worship. And so I, I just am not pulling up how much rest was what was a part of that. Yeah. Okay. Now, I know it's kind of, I threw you a curveball there, but uh, I, I mean, I just, I, I, well, I, yeah, I just feel like with, with ex- you know, here's why, here's one reason I ask, because I tend to go after extreme, you know, when I get fired up about something, I'm all in and, um, and, and some people are wired that way. And it's so good to be all in and, and, you know, and, but I think there's two things that have to complement those. And, and one is wisdom and counsel, uh, which go hand in hand. And, and the other is, is rest and, and Sabbath and finding a balance in all of those things. And so some people hear things about people like the desert mothers and fathers and they're like, yes, you know, we're going to, let's get crazy for Jesus. And it's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Do that. But finding a balance in that I think is important. So well, you certainly have stories of someone saying to someone to take a less strict regimen. 
so that they could do it long term. Because I think mm-hmm. what, I, what I worry about is I've watched people who get it, exactly what you said, get excited about it and then run off to do far more than they're capable of doing. And rather than moving towards that slowly and building up, and then they go, I can't do this. I mean, I, 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 I think of, I, I did a talk at a, at a regional gathering for vineyard pastors and I shared some stuff and I, I taught, I got asked a question about my, my spiritual practices. So I described a bit of that and someone in the room who you guys would know heard that and said, I need to do that. I need to get away for a day of silence. So, so he asked me where I went, which I go out to this monastery on the other side of the mountains from my house. And he said, I'm going to go out there for three days. And he went out there and he lasted six hours. And I was out there after him, you know, a month or so later. And the, the abbot emeritus is a friend of mine. And he goes, you know, that guy you sent out? I said, well, I didn't really send him, but he asked about it. He goes, <laughs> he goes, he goes that guy could not handle silence. And, and mm-hmm. I, I just said, you need to go home. <laughs> like six hours into the three days that he had booked out there. And, wow. and I, that's very common. I mean, I mean, it's no different than you see at the gym. I went to the gym this morning, and it's so humorous. When I'm on the the treadmill, I look down. So that's this balcony. That's where the elliptical and the treadmills are. And I see people who are on the stair climber thing, and it's obvious that they haven't been to the gym for a while. (laughs) They overdo it. And now they may come at another time, or maybe they've changed enough that I don't recognize them. But a lot of the times, I don't ever see them again after the second day. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to do that spiritually. And mm-hmm. that accomplishes nothing except, mm-hmm. you know, sort of to be vaccinated against. Oh, I tried that. I tried the Christian thing, whatever it was. That didn't work for mm-hmm. me. I tried the spirituality thing. So, mm-hmm. so they're making choices for a lifetime. I mean, they make mm-hmm. a lifetime commitment to this. Mm. I think that is what helps moderate that. And that becomes mm-hmm. then the basis for how do I move into this? And how do I mm-hmm. do that in a way that I'm going to be able to sustain this? Yeah, I wanted to read just a couple of quick quotes by the Desert Fathers. And I would love for the two of you uh, to maybe riff on what you think the second one means. I just really like the first one. So it, this is Abba Poman called the Shepherd. And he said, do not give your heart to that which does not satisfy your heart. It's a pretty simple quote, but I, that's one that I had heard before and really resonated with me. Do not give your heart to that which does not satisfy your heart. And the other one is attributed to Anthony the Great, the guy you brought up, Mark. And this is the one I'd love to get your all's thoughts on. Because for me, this really seems to summarize the way I, I think the Desert Fathers thought. Um, so he said, remember him who gives death and life. Hate the world and all that is in it. Hate all peace that comes from the flesh. Renounce this life so that you might be alive to God. And for me, that really, I guess, in my mind, summarizes what I hear throughout the Desert Fathers. You guys have any thoughts, especially around the thought where he says, "Hate the world and all that is in it." I mean, I know that's that's that sounds a little bit like John in the in John's letters, but what does that mean? And what do you think the Desert Fathers meant when they said things like that? Aaron, go for it. <laughs> what stood out to me from from that second one, Josh, was um, 
what was the what was the bit about peace about a fault that's where my mind went was a a disdain for a false peace what was that it said said hate hate all peace that comes from the flesh yeah so my my mind immediately just went to frankly all the ways i and people in our society broadly i'd love to be more set apart than i am but um find measures of peace that um aren't actually peace they're they're faults they're distractions they're pulling me away they're um ways to fill my mind and maybe even maybe even be could be a religious thing you know i think a lot of people um you know mark was talking about silence earlier i think a lot of people use prayer as a method to avoid silence and stillness (laughs) like they'll just they'll do something spiritual fill it with a bunch of words uh, kind of check a spiritual box and what they really need to do is just be still in the Lord's presence. But so even with religious things, we can make false peace. And that's what stood out to me is like, these guys were saying, look, I don't, I don't want anything to do. Maybe the world is becoming more accepting of Christianity. Um, and I don't want to be drawn into the the sort of easy believism that, that maybe was well, well that was historically, at least on its way. That's good. And I don't know, because I'd, I'd have to look at that quote, but it wouldn't surprise me if that word peace were the Greek word hezekiah, which can also be translated as peace. And so that's what they're pursuing is a silence that exists inside, because mm. deep inside of them is an awareness of the closeness of God. That's what they were discovering inside. Mm. So it, it re- I, think, I think you're right, Josh, is a great summary of of many of the key pieces of what they were attempting to do and they physically left the world to find something Mm. else and to really live a life that was oriented around god Mm. and that reality rather than all the other things that drew them Mm. mark i wonder if we could if we could get you to take off your professor hat and put on your pastor hat um you've done both (laughs) um where you said earlier um you know, we're not all, we're not all supposed to live monastic lives. Okay. Um, but you know, um, solitude, silence, stillness, um, is not some fringe extreme Christian practice. It's like really fundamental and core. And so if, if people are hearing this saying, well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not moving to the desert anytime soon, but I need to cultivate, I need to take at least some steps to begin to cultivate silence, stillness, solitude, um, how would how would you ad- advise us to maybe take some first steps in that direction? Yeah, I I think it would be helpful to learn a bit first, so that you have some sense of of what to expect. Unlike my friend who rushed out in an effort to to mm-hmm. to find what I had described happen as the result of silence and solitude in my life, and so I think the classic Richard Foster's book celebration of discipline has a chapter on that. And Mm -hmm. he is a master at summarizing, like he's obviously familiar with all of these folks and has done just a magnificent job at boiling that down to, to a handful of key things. So that would be an accessible one or Dallas Willard spirit of the disciplines who has, who writes quite a bit about solitude there. So I would say, and then I think secondly, you know, this actually originates with Jesus and Jesus got away for times of silence and solitude and Luke's gospel in particular highlights that. And so I think taking some time to look at those and ponder a bit 
where they fell in the rhythm of Jesus's life and ministry. So I think getting some understanding, and those would also give some idea of how to structure that time. Mm-hmm. Because it is it is disconcerting for most people. I mean, the, the problem is, is that things come up and there are things that they don't necessarily want to deal with, which was precisely mm-hmm. the point of the statement, go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything, is you can't run mm-hmm. from anything. You have zero distraction and you're mm-hmm. forced to deal with what's there, or maybe more accurately, you face what's there and allow God to deal with what's there. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, getting a little bit of knowledge and then and then maybe starting with increasingly longer periods of time. So I'm going to take a morning and I'm just going to not speak. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember I've, I've done a eight-day silent Ignatian retreat quite a few times. And I remember the first time I went, it was a beautiful place that overlooked San Francisco Bay. So up in Northern California, I'm in Southern California. And I met with my spiritual director, who was a Roman Catholic archbishop, and he gave me my assignment. It was a passage from Ephesians, and he said, spend today with Ephesians, this passage. Mm. It was like three or four verses, and I love Ephesians. So I went out, I found a quiet place, I sat on a bench, I read this passage, I read it again, I read it again, I read it again. I saw some great insights. I thought, this is going to be great. This is going to be easy. I'll bet this has been two hours. And I looked at my watch, and it had been 20 minutes. Wow. And I realized (laughs) this is a new kind of slow. Mm. And so I think it takes some time to to slow down. And I needed – now, that was not my first retreat, but it was my first retreat of that length. But even in that, I had to learn some things about how to be quiet and mm. slow down and yeah just just so i would say start with maybe a morning or an afternoon in a park mm. a monastery is a great place for that that's quiet mm. and has that history of that and mm. take a bible and focus on a few verses it's not i mean silence and solitude is not the time to read so that's not the time to catch up on reading that's not time mm. to our New Testament. It's not the entire time to read the entirety of Luke or any of the other Gospels, as wonderful as they are. It can be a time to sit with a verse. So I think just letting that happen and see what happens, and then having the opportunity to debrief with someone, particularly mm-hmm. someone that may know a bit more about the process, because there are certain things that are learned in silence and solitude. And again, you can talk about what those are, but it's talking about them in our culture sometimes almost equates with doing them. And Mm. so I don't want to say what those things are, but I will say one. So one of the things you discover is that you're not alone, but you Mm. don't know that until you do that. Mm. And then you find out that God is actually here with me. And that is one of the things that carries over in a way that is of immense value. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was just thinking like, Anybody in any type of leadership, which, uh, so, you know, we come from a vineyard background where we talk about everybody gets to play. So essentially everybody has the potential to be a leader. Um, but when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about doing these formational things that you're describing, I mean, they, they really are much more Christ-like than a lot of other ways that we quote unquote do the Christian walk today. And especially in leadership, I think a lot of Christian leaders that I know look a lot more like a you know, a, a high-powered CEO type or whatever than they do a desert mother or father. And 
I think Jesus would probably look more like one of those desert mothers and fathers that are that are weird to us. They're just like I said, I've, I've said it like five times on this podcast. They're weird. But, you know, I, you go back and you look at the stuff Jesus did and said, and they were weird. Like they were countercultural. Mm-hmm. They were strange. Uh, and they didn't make him they made him popular with the down and outers and not with the the high ranking people mm-hmm. in society. And so. Yeah, anyway, I, I I love this conversation. I love that you opened it up uh, to letting us discover just a little bit. I want to just say two quick things, and this is all I've got. Um, one is I want to I want to say, if, if you're listening to this and you've not read Celebration of the Disciplines by Richard Foster that, that Mark brought up, that really is yeah. a fantastic place to start. It was very formational for me personally. I know it has been for a lot, probably both of you. And, um, and, then, and then also, uh, yeah, I would just affirm what, what Mark said, it really wasn't until uh, just a few years ago that I started getting into this, these contemplative waters and trying to work them into rhythms of my life. Um, and I would just, I would just echo exactly what you said of starting, starting slow in order to go fast later or, mm-hmm. or to do more later, because a lot of young people, especially they're like, ah, desert mothers and fathers. That sounds really cool. That's awesome. That's I'd love to explore that. And they dive all in. And then they burn out. So, yeah, starting with with one small practice that you can be faithful to, uh, and then going from there. Yeah, that's all I've got, Aaron. Did you have any other questions no. for Mark? Well, you you jogged my memory there. It was a number of years ago where uh, Mark, you were telling me about centering prayer, um, and I decided to give that practice a go. And I started with two minutes, um, two minutes, and it felt like a long time. <laughs> And then two became five, became 10, became 20, became 30. But, um, um, it's that, that's a slow process. Um, and yet that's, that's almost kind of the point. Um, uh, it's a different, I think Mark, you said earlier, something about it's a, just a different way to slow down or a different kind of slow. And, uh, I think it's important for us to learn, um, cause it's a, some of that. And for a lot of us, it's about relinquishing control as well. Every moment is really powerful. So Mark, I, I will ask you just one thing. Um, one of the, one of my favorite things I've heard you talk about, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit, but you'll be fine. Um, uh, over the years, I've heard you talk about the Jesus prayer and what that's meant to you personally and how that's gotten built into some of your rhythms and um, loved hearing you say that. So would you, uh, would you maybe just share a bit about that? Yeah, so the the Jesus prayer, there's a it actually has its origin in the Desert Fathers, like mm-hmm. like that's where it started was with them, and it's a pract a key practice for the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they do it with a prayer rope, the origin of which probably is in the desert because they would be assigned a certain number of prayers, and they the tradition in the desert was to have a bo- a a basket of rocks and if you were going to pray it a hundred times you would put a hundred rocks in there and every time you would pray it you would move one out and then that became the prayer rope so it's different than a rosary in a in the catholic tradition mine's right over there hanging right <laughs> when i'm not using it and um and so it's a matter of praying the prayer the most the common version is jesus christ son of god have mercy on me a sinner that's actually the a little bit longer version that's the one i use i use my lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on mercy on me a sinner and it does a number of things it's a way of focusing the mind i i have a mind that thinks about a lot of things and so it's very easy for my mind to be distracted and to go other places 
and not concentrate on Jesus. And so I get, I've had thousands of opportunities to draw my attention back to, to what I'm saying. I do it in conjunction with my breath. And so I breathe in on Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Yeah. And then breathe out on have mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. And um, it's one of the ways of trying to live out 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that's lasted over time. And um, I, I find it really, really valuable personally. And we had a situation, I won't go through the whole story, but it was a, a pretty potentially pretty traumatic experience a few months ago. And I ended up doing CPR on my grandson who um, had fallen unconscious in the bathtub and was close to drowning. And so here's this really not great experience. And I'm talking to him and I'm doing CPR on him and I'm praying the Jesus prayer. And in a way mm -hmm. that I cannot describe with a sense of God's closeness to me and what could have been mm -hmm. a horrifically traumatic moment. And it just mm -hmm. felt like those years of doing it. I mean, I can't, if I focus on my breath, I immediately go to the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. And I, it's really, really interesting how that becomes embodied. And so they learned something in that. And the Orthodox mm -hmm. folks would say, that's a tried and true path to Hezekiah, which again is silence internally. And mm -hmm. I certainly had an awareness in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's traumatic. I mean, no one thinks they're going to do CPR on their four-year-old grandson. Yeah. And yet God was very, very present in that moment mm -hmm. in a way that I had not anticipated. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get out of um, years of spending time each morning with God in a variety of ways, including praying the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's not, again, not something that you earned, but it's a grace that came from something that had through, through, pattern and ritual been sort of built into your most natural response. I mean, um, you mentioned Willard earlier, uh, we quote him a lot and he talk, talks about the mind returning to the Lord, like the needle of a compass returns to the North. It just becomes the natural resting place. And it's, um, interesting and beautiful that in a time of deep crisis and panic, um, your mind returned to a simple prayer of trust, a breath prayer um, about the mercy of our God. And then you found that mercy. I, I love that. I love that. Well, Mark, um, man, I really appreciate you taking some time um, to share with us and share some of your expertise. Thank you for being a, uh, a lifelong learner and so that you, you have information like this to share, but then more personally, um, uh, your friendship I know has meant a lot to both of us, but I, I experienced you as a person always uh, have experienced you as a person who, um, I don't know, some people talk about these things and some people embody them. Some people carry that sense of, of peace, of, 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 I keep wanting, it's not Hezekiah, that's, it's Hez, uh, what again? <laughs> yeah. Hezekiah, <laughs> yes. Hezekiah, uh, you uh, you carry Hezekiah with you, man, in a way that has been an awful lot to share to me over the years, and uh, I know a lot of other people as well. So, anyway, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I, I really appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Thanks, Mark. Mm -hmm.